Good morning, you guys. Uh, let me give you guys a quick public, public service announcement in case some of you guys are boneheaded and have lost track of calendar dates. Today is Valentine's. So uh, if some of y'all uh, have not done yet anything for your girl, you may want to get on that before you get in a lot of trouble. Um, and let me give you not just a reminder, but let me give you guys a, a suggestion. Uh, Marcy and I always celebrate Valentine's not on Valentine's. I hate the crowd of restaurants. So I took Marcy Friday night to Messina Hof. We had a great dinner. Um, and let me tell you guys, uh, just a suggestion, eight ninety five. you can get strawberries, Romanoff flambe. Now, you guys know what strawberries are. I don't know what Romanoff is, but I do know what flambe means, fire, all right? You can get three different desserts at Messina Hof lit on fire, all right? Now, if that doesn't stoke romance, I don't know what does, all right? So, eight ninety five bananas, foster, cherries, jubilee, or strawberries, Romanoff, all on fire. You choose. Great time, all right? Uh, since it's Valentine's, we also decided why not talk about sex, all right? So that's what we're doing this morning. This will be a Sunday morning unlike any other before. If you've been part of dating talks in the past, this is nothing like a dating talk, all right? So we're going to jump into a topic that uh, probably you maybe have never heard the church or at least a college of ministry address as bluntly, as head-on, and as specifically as we will this morning. Um, with that in mind, let me just say that we're going to tackle some issues and use some words that are probably more blunt and more adult-like than you're used to at church on a Sunday morning. So... Once you guys kind of know what's coming, where we're going, we're going to go right at some of this this morning in a way that you maybe have never heard the church address. So uh, with that said, let us pray, all right, and ask for God's blessing. Um, Father God, we give you great thanks uh, that you have redeemed us, that you have restored us, and as Tyler said, that you have loved us no matter where we've been in our past, Um, that there's been nothing that could separate us from your love, from your affection, from your mercy, and that you have granted us unmerited and unparalleled grace. Um, And Father, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would, as we walk through this topic, Uh, that you would give us fresh eyes, um, that you would give us uh, soft hearts, that you would give us open ears to hear in a fresh way that which you've designed sex to be, Um, that you would give us a a fresh reminder, um, that you would allow us to see it in a new way, not as our culture has shown it, and not as our media has displayed it, but that as you have designed it and as you have articulated it in your written word. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom this morning, that you would direct our paths, that you would give us a fresh sense of what you've designed and the way it's to be experienced, Lord. And I pray that you would give us Uh, the courage to really look at it afresh um, and to listen afresh to you, Lord, this morning. And we ask for these things through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I had the opportunity last night. There's been a movie I've always wanted to watch. Uh, It's not the freshest or most recent, but I know a lot of you guys have seen it before. Supersize Me. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. Uh, I've always kind of wanted to see it. Marcy's kind of always wanted me to see it as well because I don't have the the healthiest eating habits in the world. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. That's not this talk either. So uh, one of the things I thought was really fascinating, maybe you guys know the storyline a little bit, and that's that this guy decides for 30 days he's going to feed himself only McDonald's, all right? I think part of what had kind of driven him to this project or experiment was there were two young girls who decided, uh, whose parents ended up suing McDonald's because they felt McDonald's was culpable for their children's obesity. Uh, court systems, injustices aside, again, this guy's going to try to move out and prove that McDonald's can lead to a complete breakdown of your physical health. So he eats McDonald's three meals a day for 30 days straight. Uh, before he starts this experiment, he goes to a uh, family practice guy, he goes to a dietitian, he goes to all kinds of doctors, and he gets a completely clean bill of health. And what's fascinating is you kind of watch this guy walk through about 30 days of eating McDonald's is to see the change in his health, to see the change in his personality, to see the change in his relationships. Uh, one of the things that struck me was even as he kind of walks through this, uh, I was kind of fascinated that on day two he's throwing up already, but, uh, but as you kind of walk through it, uh, he, he not only continues to like the taste of McDonald's, but he ends up, after he eats each time, he ends up wanting it 
quickly thereafter. That he doesn't really seem to get really completely sick of it. And as he moves on, though, what's ended up happening to his body, to his life, is, is catastrophic. Uh, ends up by day 20 that his doctors are looking at blood printouts and saying that basically his kidneys are not just failing, but they are on the verge of po- possibly having to even get into the emergency room. And so they, g- they give him, after just three weeks, a bunch of precautions that if he begins to see certain things, pains in his arms, chest pains, that he needs to get to the emergency room quickly. Um, even the relationship that he's in, even the girlfriend that he's living with, begins to express and talk about that the way that his diet is beginning to change him. That he's not the same person. It's not just kidney failures. It's not just blood tests and, and cholesterol, but that even sexually he's not functioning in the same way. Uh, that even his energy in work and life is completely different. His personality is different. About day 20, he begins to experience a little bit of depression. That, that what was his diet was affecting not just fat, cholesterol, and blood counts, but it was affecting relationships and it was beginning to affect every arena of his life. I kind of found it fascinating because I always think about diet and I think about how narrow it is and what it can impact in your life. In reality, though, what the movie kind of shows is that, that a, a diet, a natural appetite directed in the wrong manner for the wrong amount of time can actually ruin the entirety of your life. Every relationship he was in, every physical amount of energy, every health item that he had was just completely ruined for about a month of this diet. In fact, he wouldn't be physiologically back to the same for about six months thereafter. It took six months for his kidneys, for his blood counts, for his cholesterol, for his body weight to get back to where it was prior to one month on this diet. One of the things that kind of struck me as I kind of thought about it was if diet can have that kind of holistic impact on who you are, on the way you live, on the way you relate, what can sexuality do? So this morning we're going to kind of talk through what sex is. I'm going to submit to you guys this morning that much of our culture and much of what you and I have seen and heard from media and from movies is that it makes sexuality into something that is akin to a hunger appetite. That your sexuality is only and is merely reduced to some kind of physical appetite and physical need for satisfaction. And that it is completely divorced from anything that is really pertaining to more of who you are. And the result of it is that our culture in our day and time is beginning to have more and more sex for least and least satisfaction. And what we're finding is that our culture is more and more broken than ever before. What I want to submit to you is that what the world has put forth as what sexuality is, what it requires, what it provides, is so far different from what God has said. And the result is not just that our world and our culture has been deceived, but they are experiencing something that is not just not only not satisfying them, but is completely leaving them depressed, broken, and lonely. And that which is leaving them depressed, broken, and lonely is causing them to reach out wherever and to whomever for sex. Our culture and our day and time is one that is obsessed with sexuality. Um, I'm going to give you guys a few stats. You guys may have heard this before, but um, according a couple years ago from some studies, we found out that 65% of high school seniors have had sexual intercourse. Another 25% have not had sexual intercourse, but they have had oral sex. So by the time that someone graduates from high school, studies are showing that 90% of people have had sexual intercourse or they've had oral sex. So by the time that people graduating from high school and by the time they arrive in college, we are seeing in our college campuses and we're seeing in our media a culture that is obsessed with sex and it is everywhere you and I look and it is everywhere you and I live. We have a very obsessed cultural uh, deal with sexuality today. And that obsession, I'm going to argue to you guys, is leading to an addiction that is not only not satisfying anymore, but is being experienced and lived out in a way that is leaving you and I more and more lonely, more and more depressed, and more and more broken than ever before. But if that's the case, why did it go so wrong, and what really is sexuality? The uh, former leader of the Soviet Union, uh, Lenin, said this, there's no more difference in sexuality than having a drink of water. That a sexual experience is much like a meal, or much like taking a drink of a delicious Dr. Pepper, all right? That, that, uh, that for much of our culture, I'd argue, and even for Lenin, he just flat out says it, that sexuality is nothing more 
than a physical satisfaction from a physical activity of physical organs. The sexuality, that's all that it is. My question for you this morning is, do you believe that is all that it is? Do you believe that it is merely only a physical interaction of physical organs that lead to a physical feeling? Because if it is, you're going to find something that is not only not satisfying, but it will leave you utterly bankrupt, broke, and dead, in a sense, internally. So I want to show you guys, in a sense, what I want to do this morning is not guilt you and not just lay a bunch of heaping guilt upon you this morning, but what I want to do is, in a sense, contrast culturally what our world and our media is saying sex is and show you what God has designed sex to be. I'm going to come hard, I'm going to come clear, but not to guilt you, but to show you that the world is offering something so different and something so devastating from what God has designed sex to be. So the question is really, what is sex? What did God design sex to be? I'm going to kind of start off there and, and argue that God intended sex to be a holistic exchange. Lynn says that sex is merely drinking water. <laughs> the sex is merely a physical activity of physical organs. And I think God designed sex to be something entirely more than that. In fact, this is an idea that even the Corinthian church had. Paul addresses this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he starts off, in a sense, the very beginning of what I'm about to read to you guys, with, in a sense, what the Corinthians were saying. This is what they said. This is what they thought. They said, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. The Corinthians believed just like the stomach was for food and the consumption of food and that God would do away with the body and food in the future, then it did not matter what you did with the body. It was for something temporary. It was for something that was, in a sense, irrelevant in in a day and age which would be dismissed. Paul will come back and say, actually, the body is not for immorality, but is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. And what Paul is coming back and he's saying is this, a couple things. One is, the the Lord is pro-body. There is a a theory out there, or there's an attitude out there that sexuality or that the body, all that is physical, is immoral and wrong. Paul's point is, no, that the body is not immoral. It is actually created, and God will look in Genesis 2 in a minute, and Adam is going to proclaim and praise Eve's body, that the body was created good. In fact, not only was the body created good, but the spiritual life is not compartmentalized away from the physical body. That what you do with your physical body has as much to do with your spirituality as if you read the Bible. Paul's point is that you cannot divorce spirituality from the body, nor can you in that think you can do whatever you want with the body and do whatever because it's going to be dismissed or, or in a sense burned away later. He goes on further, he says this, The two shall become one flesh, every other sin that a man commits outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, therefore glorify God in your body. Part of what I'm trying to get you guys to see is one, that spirituality is inclusive of what you do with your physical body. The second thing is the Corinthians believed, like I read from that quote from Lenin, that, that sexuality was merely physical. Much like the, the stomach was for food, so the sexual organs were for sex, and it's just merely a physical interaction. It's nothing more. And because of that, they said you could do whatever you wanted, and Paul will come back and say, no, 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 no. Sexuality, in a sense, is, is even more than just a physical activity, but it is holistic of who you are. That's why rape victims can be healed physically months later, but they're never healed emotionally, psychologically, interpersonally. Because sexuality is not something that is just physical, but it is inclusive of all that you are. It is inclusive of all that you think and all that you feel. Sexuality is never meant to be just physical. In fact, I'd say that, in a sense, our culture has divorced sex from any kind of emotional involvement. Uh, a lady named Jean Twin says this, The most striking shift in teenage and 20-something sexual behavior in the last decade is the disconnect between sex and emotional involvement. That now sex and emotion, sex and feeling are becoming more and more divorced, more and more compartmentalized away from each other, such that more and more people are having sex but finding it least and least satisfying and they're getting more and more broken. And the result is they're now moving out and reaching out wherever and to whomever to find sex and yet they're finding something that is even more and more less satisfying. 
And the same thing I want you guys to see, and since uh, Lewis Smeads will say this, we cannot take our bodies to bed with someone and park our souls outside in the car to wait. That when you step into bed with someone, you are stepping your entire life into that place. That you cannot divorce who you are in the entirety of your life from what you do in the bedroom. There's such an intimate connection between the two, and you cannot buy into what the world is saying that it's just physical. Because if it's just physical, you become enslaved to an addiction and a desire that just begins to grow and grow beyond what you can control. And you become enslaved to it and becomes enslaved to something that actually won't satisfy. And you end up reaching wherever and to whomever. In fact, the second thing I want you guys to see in a sense this morning is that it's not just a holistic exchange, but it's an exchange between two intimate and committed people. That Genesis will see here in a minute. Genesis will show us that what sex was meant to be was not just a holistic exchange of all of life. Not just a physical activity, but it was meant to be encountered and experienced between two people who intimately knew each other and were absolutely committed to one another. Again, something that is so different than what you and I see today in our time and in our culture. Uh, let me guys take you to Genesis 2, and you kind of see, in a sense, the first pickup line and the first hookup, all right? Genesis 2. Here's what we see. So the Lord God, and this is a passage I know a lot of you guys are familiar with, but we're going to kind of try to walk through it and have a little bit of a different lens on it this morning. So the Lord God took one of the ribs of Adam and, sh- and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So you guys have noticed a couple of things. First of all, when God creates Eve, he creates Eve out of Adam. And because of that, when Eve is created and presented to Adam, Adam intimately knows her because she is literally created out of him. So look at how he praises her. He says that she is flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. She's bone of my bones. There was an intimate knowledge that Adam had of Eve because Eve was created from Adam. Now, obviously, today women are not literally created out of man, but the idea was this, that Adam and Eve had an intimate knowledge of one another. The passage goes on and says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I think the idea of nakedness in Genesis 2.25 is not just that they were without clothes. Obviously, that was the case. In fact, the clothes won't come until later on after the fall when God will weave or create out of animal skins clothing for them and they'll clothe themselves, but they were absolutely naked before one another. I think it means not just that they were without clothes, but they were wholly vulnerable and transparent to each other. Not only were they wholly and transparent, but they were transparent and not ashamed of insecurities, of failures, of weaknesses, of anything. They were wholly transparent, wholly known, and not ashamed. In fact, one of the things I think that's really interesting as you walk through the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, is that the wording that the Old Testament writers use for sex, all right? Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, watch this. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Why did I choose Genesis 4? One, I love this phrase, man-child, all right? I have no idea why they choose that. I think it's hilarious. I've always thought I wanted a man-child. We had a girl. The girl's precious, but not a man-child, right? <laughs> Cain was a man-child, all right? Besides that, though, what, what I want you guys to see, all right? I want you guys to see this. How does, they, how does the scriptures refer to sex? They had relations with each other. Notice that sex was something that was intimately between two people. It was, in a sense, in the context of a relationship. In fact, biblical passages, and you look in other translations, will say that Adam knew his wife Eve. <laughs> Interesting. Why in the world did they say that he knew his wife Eve? Why is that the biblical word describing sex? But the point again is that there was an intimate knowledge of one another within sex. That it wasn't just a physical activity, but it was two people who knew each other incredibly well. But it wasn't just intimate knowledge, but there was also commitment between one another. If you guys kind of walk through the... Um, Genesis 2.24, when we kind of walk through it, they, they leave father and mother. Again, the idea being that they leave dependence on father and mother and they commit themselves and put themselves dependently into a new family and into a new relationship. 
In fact, they were not ashamed. And I think part of the reason they were not ashamed was not just that they were known, but with commitment, they were known and not scared because someone wasn't going to walk away. The reason why you and I date and so often are so scared is because we're so scared that the person is going to walk away that if they really see us for who we are, they're out of here. So you and I present masks, you and I present our best, put our best foot forward in dating because we want to win them. We want them to see our best, but eventually over time, eventually you cannot hide your best and always present your best, and they begin to see you as you are. And the question is, as they begin to see you as you are, not only are they getting more knowledge of you, but the question is, will they stay with you? And if they stay with you in the midst of what they see, even when it's weakness, even when it's bad, even when it's ugly, that's a sense of shine and they're, and they're developing and their commitment for you. No matter what they see, they're staying right there with you. Uh, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were not ashamed because they weren't scared. They weren't going to go anywhere else. They were committed to one another. I would argue with you guys that in many regards, if you have commitment but you don't have knowledge, in many regards what you're going to see sexually in our culture is that you have either knowledge being removed or you have commitment being removed or you have knowledge and commitment being removed and sex is encountered between two people who don't know each other and have no commitment to each other. And if you remove knowledge but you have commitment, what you end up having is a relationship that leads to duty, not love. So arranged marriages work all the time in other parts and culture because there's commitment, but there's not knowledge. And the result of commitment without knowledge more than likely leads to an experience and a relationship of duty, not necessarily love. Love requires knowledge and commitment. In fact, we have often said rules without relationship leads to rebellion. That if you have commitment, but you don't have a relationship, it more often than not either leads to duty or you just bail out and you're gone. On the flip side of that, more often than not, what, do our, what does our culture do? What's the analogy they use of sex? It's like test driving the car. If you want to know the car and you want to commit to the car, take it for a spin. That's our culture's idea, right? Sex is, in a sense, taking the car for a spin. But the reality is sex was never meant for you to be the means by which you knew or found commitment with each other. Sex doesn't necessarily build knowledge or commitment leading into marriage. In fact, I'm going to argue, as we look a little bit later, that sex will do the opposite of that if there isn't ultimate knowledge and ultimate commitment to each other. It will actually destroy the relationship, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But ultimately, what sex did for the marriage and for a, a relationship between a man and woman is that it was the initial means of commitment. In fact, in the ancient days, what you had for wedding ceremonies is you had the ceremony husband and wife joined by uh, an efficient wedding uh, party and friends all around. And then after they were pronounced husband and wife, what did they do? They didn't immediately go to a reception. Instead, they went to a bridal chamber where they, hello, consummated the marriage. All right, And then after they, hello, consummated the marriage, they then emerged for the reception with all their friends and family. Does that not sound like the most awkward thing in the world? <laughs> all right, we don't do that today, all right? You don't need to be biblical or ancient in your traditions because that is just immensely awkward, all right? But the reality is this. At a wedding ceremony, we pronounce them married in the eyes of God, in the eyes of family and friends, but in reality, until they've consummated it sexually, they are not married. So we are at a reception, in a sense, proclaiming and celebrating something that has not yet happened but is about to happen, right? Does that make sense? Sex consummates and brings the commitment to a marriage initially, but it becomes that which allows the couple over and over to come back to this relationship, know each other deeper, and be more and more committed to one another. Sex is meant to be that which brings initial commitment, that which comes at the moment of marriage, not that which comes before. But the reality is you and I in our culture and day and time are having sex more and more with people we don't know and with people we don't have commitment to. And the result of it is that we are finding something that is not satisfying and that is utterly breaking us in such that we're actually now more and more reaching out wherever and to whoever. In fact, I ran across this quote as well. Gene Twin says this, In the NBC People poll, almost half of young teens uh, said their sexual contact was outside of a relationship, someone they didn't even know. A 2001 study found that 60%, almost half of those that are having sex in high school, are doing it 
with people they don't even have a relationship with, maybe a friendship with. They're having sex with someone they barely even know. And if they barely even know them, they're not exactly showing themselves as to who they are, and there's no way commitment's coming from that, right? Something that's occurring between people that is not at all built on knowledge nor built on commitment, and what it's doing is destroying young people. Um, in fact, I think what, what's happening for you and I in our generation time is we are now reaching out wherever and to whomever, desperately looking for satisfaction. Where are we reaching today? And I'm going to give you guys statistics on STDs. I'm not going to even go there, but I'm going to argue that because of where we're reaching it, we are dying inside because we are not finding all that God intended. And what we're taking is, in a sense, a substitute and a counterfeit that's killing us. Where are we dying? Where are we reaching? Um, here we go. All right. I don't think God intended sex to be pornography. Uh, and, and before all the ladies check out on me here, uh, statistics say that 80% of guys struggle with pornography. 31% of women are now struggling with pornography. So this is no longer just a guy issue. Uh, but it is at the essence of a sexual experience that involves no commitment and no knowledge of a person. <laughs> and the result of it is something that is so far different than what God designed sex and a sexual experience to be found and to be satisfied in. So what's happening? Um, I ran across a quote um, from C.S. Lewis. And again, it's going to talk about a man, but I'd argue this is not just masculine issues anymore. When we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman, strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. I realize that's a strong quote, but the issue with pornography is this. There's no knowledge of a person. There's no commitment to a person. And so what's happening is that the person is being objectified. Uh, for most of those that are looking at pornography, you have no clue who you're looking at. Studies have said 60 to 80% of those that are in pornography are in pornography more than likely because they've all had an, a, a, they're all adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. They were treated as an object sometime as a child. They became familiar with it. They became broken because of it. And now they're continuing a lifestyle in which they're making themselves an object and they don't care because they're so broken and yet it pays a lot of money. And you and I have no clue in a sense who we're looking at. Um, even more, I uh, ran across a quote from John Mayer. He did an interview with Playboy, and this was found on a website. Let me just kind of clarify, right? A website known as triplexchurch.com. Uh, they posted this on their front page. It was an interview John Mayer did with Playboy about pornography. I've edited this quite a bit, but this is basically what he said. By the way, pornography. It is a new synaptic pathway. You wake up in the morning, open a thumbnail page, and it leads to a Pandora's box of visuals. Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. 20 seconds ago, you thought that photo was the hottest thing you ever saw, but you throw it back and continue your shot hunt and continue to make yourself late for work. How does that not affect the psychology of having a relationship with somebody? It's got to. Absolutely, because during sex, I'm just going to run a film strip. Well, that exp- what that explains is that I'm more comfortable in my imagination than I am in actual human discovery. Okay, that's really a strong quote, and some of y'all are probably squeaming a little bit, but let me kind of express, express why I think it's so fitting. All right, this is John Mayer, all right? Second of all, um, what do you see? One of the things he's saying is this. He says that it's so, because he's so engrossed by it, it's so changed his expectations that now reality is no longer satisfying. He, he has become so, in a sense, this appetite has gotten so out of control, it is owning him and it is no longer, he's never finding himself satisfied. And yet he keeps pursuing and keeps chasing and he keeps running. Not only that, not only has it no longer moved him where he can ever be satisfied, but now he's more comfortable, notice this, He's more comfortable in his imagination than he is in an actual human relationship. Did you catch that? What pornography does is it moves your expectations so far beyond what reality will ever satisfy you with. And what it does is it moves you relationally to a place that you can't actually interact with a person 
because you're so much more comfortable and safe in your imagination. Pornography is for those that are weak, lazy, passive, and unwilling to take a risk. It takes a whole lot more of a risk to step across the room, meet someone, and interact with them and take a risk that you could be rejected. But what pornography has taught you and I is that you can have sexuality on your terms, on your timing, with no risk and no cost and no risk of being rejected by a human person. That's what pornography is doing, and it's killing men and women, and it's killing marriages. But it's not just that. Um, I'm going to throw out a word, and here we go. This is church. This is, a, <laughs> this is a different Sunday morning. But it's also not masturbation, all right? Um, uh, here's why I'm going to say that. Masturbation, at its essence, is so far from what God intended. And this, again, involves no knowledge of a person, other person, and it involves no commitment to another person. It teaches you that sexuality is all about you, and it comes on your terms, and it comes at your timing, and it comes whenever you want it. Masturbation is creating a pattern in people's lives that teaches them that sexuality is all about their needs and their desires, and it comes all about at their timing, on their terms, and it comes at no cost to human interactions and to human need and the need to serve somebody else. It's all about you. In fact, pornography and masturbation are so taking the appetite of sexuality in our culture and just, in a sense, growing it beyond what it can control and beyond what it could ever be satisfied. It's just killing marriages and it's killing relationships. Um, and for many people, it's not just there. For many people, then it leads to premarital and extramarital sex. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 will say that the marriage bed is to be held in high regard, high honor, and sanctification. That it is reserved and is set apart, it is holy, it is distinct and separate. That in a sense, premarital and extramarital sex are taking the marriage bed, that which was meant to be just for the committed union of two people who knew each other within marriage, and it's taken that and it's made it common and it's made it mundane. In fact, um, I'm going to argue and give you guys an analogy that what premarital sex does for a relationship is two things. Either it is CPR for a dying relationship, the relationship's dying, and so people desperately reach out and, and try to bring sex into it, thinking that sex will revive a relationship that is either dead or dying. The second thing that premarital sex will do is it is, in a sense for many people, they think what it'll do is help them know each other better and help them move toward commitment. What I will tell you what premarital sex will do is it'll do the exact opposite. Either it'll try to revive a dead relationship that will just kill it all the more, or it'll try to get a relationship further out ahead, but what it will do is bring something into the relationship that the relationship's not ready for, and that relationship is ready to crash. In fact, studies will show, statistics tell us that those that engage in premarital sex and actually then get married are 60% more likely for divorce. Why is that? Inability to have self-restraint in dating sure as heck translates right into marriage and inability to maintain self-restraint as well. If someone's cheating on you now or if someone is engaging in premarital sex now, the likelihood that they will engage extramaritally later is hugely likely. And that's not even to mention the fact that if you engage in premarital sex, the likelihood that that relationship will actually lead to marriage is all the more unlikely because it's bringing something into the relationship that it cannot handle because this is not the way it was designed to be experienced. And so what ends up happening is distrust, regret, frustration, hurt, loneliness, even though you're with someone. But the reality is since you don't know them and they don't know you, you're in, entering into something in which you are actually finding yourself all the more lonely and all the more used than ever before. But what was God intending sex to provide? If, if it was intended to be something that we're experiencing it so differently, what did God intend sex to be? And essentially, God intended sex to be a picture of him. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is something in the diversity of our gender that portrays and allows for the diversity in the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, distinct in their roles and yet equal in their nature. What sex does is it provides a picture of the diversity of the Trinity. 
individual persons and yet wedded in common and, and united with one another. It gives a picture of God. Even more, it gives a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5, verses 31 to 32. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. There is something in sex and something seen in marriage that provides a portrayal or a picture not only of the holy nature of a triune God, but also of Christ's pursuit of his church and his union and his marriage of the church. There's something in sex that portrays that, and when our culture has taken it so far out of its proper context, what we see is something so different. But in fact, it's not just that it was meant to give a picture of God, but it's ultimately also meant to lead to procreation. And here's the deal. If, in a sense, God created male and female, and he invited them into a relationship with himself so that man and humanity could relate to God and then represent God in the world, procreation, in a sense, is God's advancing his kingdom among his people. That is, a man and woman who know God, who represent and walk with God, have, have a child, what they're hopefully doing is, in a sense, bringing and arming and pr- pressing the kingdom of God forward as, in a sense, offspring fill the earth and God's image fills the earth and his glory is established. That was, what, in a sense, what God meant sex to do as it procreated, but it wasn't just procreation, obviously. God didn't just provide sex for an ultimate end goal, but he did it because it was also pleasurable. Uh, if you read uh, throughout the Old Testament, you cannot miss a point that sex was meant to be pleasurable, that he designed it for that. The book of Song of Solomon is as erotic and as sensual and as graphic as you could imagine, and it will make you squeal, squeal, squirm, all right? <laughs> Dear goodness, all right, there we are. Uh, let's just move on, all right? Song, song, chapter 5, verse 1. I'm going to lose it, all right? Uh, I, <laughs> here we are. It's got to happen, right? All right. Chapter 5, verse 1, I've come into my garden, my sister, and my bride. I've gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I've eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I've drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, imbibe deeply, O lovers. Song of Solomon invites married people to engage in sex and to enjoy it for all that it could be. Squirm and squeal all you want. All right, Proverbs chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. Get the same idea from Proverbs. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Old Testament, New Testament, makes sex seem good. It was good. It was created in the garden. It was good. Yet the fall distorted all of sexuality such that what our culture and our day and age present and encourage and invite you to experience is something so far different and distorted from what God created. God created it to be a picture of Him. He created it to be that which led to procreation. He created it so that it would be experienced and, and found with pleasure. Yet it is our culture's pursuit of the pleasure that has so distorted it because we pursued the pleasure for the wrong reasons and the wrong ways and the wrong directions. And the result of it is the pleasure itself is momentary and then it fades and what comes behind it is regret, disappointment, hurt, and loneliness. Because what sex was required to have and what it was required to experience is so far different than what our culture teaches us. What did sex require of us? Uh, Sex was meant to require self-sacrifice. And this could not be more of a further idea than what our culture presents. Sex is all about you, is what our culture says. It's all about you at your terms, at your timing. And the scriptures are clear that what sex requires is self-sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own self loves himself. Sex is not all about a place where you get your needs met. Some of you guys are thinking, hey, once I finally get married, then finally I can experience all that I want to experience. And again, you're not just restraining yourselves now, but you're going to have to restrain yourselves in the future because it's not all about you. Marriage isn't where it's all going to be met and you're going to be satisfied to all that you want. In fact, it's not just self-sacrifice that's required. It's also required of self-control. Song of Solomon, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until she pleases. Throughout the book, 
as they move in dating, as they move in engagement, and they move toward marriage. Throughout the book, prior to marriage, that phrase is over and over again. Don't awaken love until it pleases. Not an emotional love, but the physical union and sex of love. And the idea was this, hey, there's a necessary restraint that's required and a holding it off and a holding it off and a holding it off until the right time. Um, I like First Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. The reality for many of us, this appetite for sexuality is so far out of control that it is possessing us and we are not possessing it. It is so far out of control that we are in a sense enslaved and addicted to it and will follow it wherever it wants to take us and to whomever it wants to take us because we have no self-control. And the reality is in a room like this, for, if we're perfectly honest, some of us have gone all the way. Some of us have gone not all the way, but we've gone really far and we feel really bad about it. Some of us haven't maybe even had the opportunity to get to mess up because for whatever reason we weren't really ever that confident with the opposite sex and we haven't really been in that many relationships and yet that's really the grace of God. That's kind of my experience. I was an absolute dork in high school, all right? Um, God protected me and I think in a sense and I was able to enter into marriage pure. Uh, but in many regards, I don't know if it's necessarily because of my self-willpower and my heightened spirituality, all right? Uh, for some of y'all, that's been the case. Some of y'all have had the opportunities, but y'all have had the, the ability to walk with God through that with purity, and that's amazing. But for all of us, at some place and in some way, to some extent, we have fallen short here. Um, our culture, our day and time, our sinful nature has all made sex that which does not lead to self-control and that which does not lead to self-sacrifice. We have all fallen short. The question is, if that's the case, where do we go from here? Um, in many regards, I want to submit to you guys that I think the reason why I want to talk about this this morning is that I think the church rarely addresses this head on. And for especially for you guys who are single and waiting to get married, not only is the church silent on the issue, but the church has little to say in a positive way to you. The church basically, the message is, hey, it's all bad now. Don't touch it. Wait till the future. And then it's all good. And your, sexual, your sexuality, in a sense, is just put on hold and on a shelf until you get married. And the church has nothing to say at all at times, or the church has nothing to say positively to you at times. And what I want to say to you this morning is there are a set of reasons and a set of means that you can pursue now that are moving you toward a, a healthy, holy, uh, uh, satisfying sexuality in the future. The first place is this. For some of you, no matter where you've been, and Tyler actually ended up closing here this morning for us, and that's this. Some of us have been to some really uh, colorful places. Um, some of us have been through a, a set of experiences that if anyone knew, we would be horribly embarrassed. But the reality is there's nowhere you could have gone, and there's no depth that you could have reached, and there's no filth that you could have walked through that Christ can't redeem, Christ can't forgive, Christ can't look at and love you. In fact, some of my favorite stories in the Gospels, Luke uh, 7, John 8, are Christ interacting with those that have failed sexually. And what I love is he invites anyone that would please themselves to throw stones at these people. And what happens is no one does, and he doesn't either. In fact, he bends a knee, and he restores them, and he loves them, and he shows them mercy. I don't know where you've been this morning. Statistics say that a lot of us have been a lot of places. And for those of us that haven't been in anything in real life, we've been on things on the web or whatever. All of us have kind of fallen short in some regard, and I want to encourage you, no matter where you've been, Christ will redeem that and restore that. And the reason why that's so hugely important is this. For some of y'all, it's not about restoring your virginity, all right? That's not going to happen. It doesn't necessarily have to happen. The question is, how do you get back on a road that moves you toward the kind of marriage and the kind of sex life that will be fulfilling and, again, all that God designed it to be? That is still possible, but it begins at the feet of the cross of Christ. For some of y'all, y'all need to have a reminder that Christ has redeemed that, he's looked upon that, and he's forgiven that. And you need to hear that this morning. 
I don't care where you've been. You need to be reminded that Christ has looked upon that. He's loved you. It's not separated you from him. And he's invited you back. And if you'll only confess and if you'll only draw near to him, he'll cleanse it and he'll forgive it. And for some of y'all, the reason you really need to do that is not just about a forgiveness of sins, but you need to realize that where one finds love is not in sex, and it's not even in a relationship with anyone on this place. Every marriage at its healthiest and at its best will be a very limited ability to find the perfect kind of love that's unconditional, that's never ceasing, that's never failing. The only place that one finds that, the only place where one's soul is satisfied is in Jesus Christ himself, who has loved you at all costs, at the cost of his very life, and has given to you a love that was absolutely unconditional, based nothing on what you did. In fact, he died even at your worst moments. He died to forgive those things, and he looked upon you, and he loved you. And what you need to know is not just that your sins are forgiven, but you need to realize that the place that you can find the greatest experience of love is not in a relationship, but it's at his feet. The place that you can find the perfect kind of love that restores, that redeems, that makes you whole is not with a guy and not with a girl, but with him. And the only way that you can actually enter into a relationship wholly and healthily to pursue self-sacrificially another person is if you've been restored and you've been made whole by Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're stepping into relationships and you're only looking for your needs to be met, for someone to make you whole and for someone to fix you. Unless you found Jesus Christ who's done that on your behalf, who's restored you, refined you, and transformed you, you will always be looking in relationships for things that it will never provide you perfectly. That's only found in Christ. For those of you guys who have made that decision of entering into a relationship with Christ or who have been reminded or, or have realized that even in your worst failures, he's there to forgive. For you guys who have done that, the question is now what? If Christ is redeemed and transformed and he's made you whole, how do you move forward? A couple of things I'd encourage you guys is not just to embrace Christ, but now to begin to build character. All right, this phase of your life, singleness is not a holding pattern for your sexuality. It is not all bad and is not on hold right now. You are in a training phase of life that is building and growing and moving you toward the kind of sexuality and the kind of marriage that will be as fulfilling and as satisfying as you can imagine. But the reality is you are building a pattern in your life now that's going to set you up for that in the future. And the first place that begins is character. And since I told you guys, premarital sex is like throwing lighter fuel on a, on, a, on a fire. Lighter fuel or premarital sex will create a gigantically huge, colorful explosion. But in about five minutes, it dies out, right? And then about five minutes later, that campfire is gone. The reality is what a campfire needs and the kind of fire that burns for a long time is the kind of fire that's not built on lighter fuel, but the kind of fire that burns from deep coals that ignite slowly and burn long. And those kinds of coals are not premarital sex. It's not found in a sexual relationship, but it's found in character. The kind of character that will move you and cause you to love well and cause you to pursue someone well sexually in marriage. And that is beginning and that is occurring right now as you walk life out. Are you building the kind of character and are you beginning to build the kind of patterns even sexually that translate and say and communicate that sex is not all about me. It's not all about my terms. It's not all about my timing. It's not going to be all about my needs and desires. The second thing is for some of y'all who are in patterns right now where that is not occurring. Maybe you're in a relationship that is straying from where you know you need to be. Maybe you're, you're occurring and walking through some things online that you know you shouldn't be walking through. Let me challenge you guys that you need to put some things in place that will allow you to begin to build a new pattern and a new experience. That occurs, sure, as you read your Bible, as you have some community, as you confess your sins. And it is as spiritual and it is a heart issue, but it's not just a heart issue. <laughs> You can have the best intentions and the greatest spiritual passion for the Lord, but if you're unwise circumstantially with the way and the kind of way that you live your life, you're going to bomb left and right every single time, all right? So for some of you guys, you need to get some things on your computers that limit what your computers are looking at. For some of you guys, you need to move your relationship from a hidden dark place out into public. For some of you guys, you need to not be alone where no one else can see. You don't need to be in a bedroom with the door closed. It's only going to lead to a path that's not going to be the best no matter what your intentions and what your heart would say. 
Some of you guys need to think real clearly about boundaries and need to think real clearly about some circumstantial things that will allow you to get on a path to begin to build a pattern that will establish character. Character comes sometimes circumstantially. As you're wise and as you put some things in place that will allow you to build character and have a chance to really remove and change and transform your heart and begin to move toward character. The last thing I want to say is it's not just about character, but it's also about that you would begin now to begin to grow relationships. Here's the deal. First uh, Timothy chapter 5 says this, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters, all in all purity. The challenge I want to give you guys this morning is, again, that your single lifestyle right now, your, your pre-marriage lifestyle is not a pattern or it's not a time when your sexuality is completely on hold. But you are building patterns and you're developing and your ability to communicate, connect, share life with people that will translate completely to the kind of marriage and the kind of sex life you're going to have in the future. The question is, how are you pursuing people now? If you are uh, uncomfortable with the opposite sex, if you have trust issues, if you have issues relating to people, those things will translate and be huge difficulties and baggage in marriage. But you have the chance now to begin to work through those to develop trust, to move beyond superficiality, begin to relate, connect, share yourself, and to open yourself up, not just with guys, but even with the opposite sex. So let me challenge you guys. There are things you can be doing now. The way that you pursue people, the way that you care, encourage the opposite sex, the way that you respect, the way that you protect, the way that you speak, communicate, and share. It's all moving you toward a sexuality in the future that's going to be satisfying, fruitful, and healthy. And hopefully, my, my hope this morning for you guys is not that I lay out a bunch of things that you guys are know, I know you're struggling with, But what I want to do and what I want to lay out this morning, what I want to challenge and call you to is to see this. What the world has told you and what you see in movies and everywhere you look and everywhere you think and everywhere you hear, you're getting a view of sexuality that could not be farther from the truth. It is not just a physical appetite. It is inclusive and responsive and will affect the entirety of who you are. In fact, not only that, but unless you can share the entirety of who you are, you're not going to have the kind of sexuality that's actually going to be satisfying and holistic. In fact, unless you do it within the context of a commitment, you're not going to have something that's safe and something that is blessing and something that will be fruitful to a relationship. You're going to have something that will possibly actually kill it and destroy it and put something into a relationship that it can't handle. That's my hope for you guys, that you get a sense that God has provided and designed something that was good, pleasurable, but he's put it within the context and parameters that are meant to provide you the best that you could find and meant to protect you from what you cannot imagine that could come. The reality for some of y'all, depending on what you're walking on, I want to challenge you to take some time this afternoon and this evening and really ask yourself, what do I believe sexuality is? Where do I believe that it was meant to be? What do I believe it is meant to provide? And what do I believe it's meant to require? And ultimately, if I look at the scriptures and I look at what God has designed, am I seeing and trying to experience and trying to pursue something in accordance with what he has designed? Or am I trying to pursue something that is so far different than that? And if you're struggling, let me ask you and encourage you again that again, Christ has redeemed that and he invites you and he, he will welcome you back. Um, if you need to talk to someone, if you need to wrestle with, through some of this with me, I'd love to talk with you and love to wrestle with you. Come grab me or email me later this week. I'd love that. Uh, but let me pray for you guys and then we'll kind of wrap up this morning. Father God, we give you great thanks um, that we are uh, weak, helpless, easily straying sheep. Father, so often we look and we desperately need and, and find whatever is provided by our world. And Father, I pray that you give us this morning, one message that goes in the face um, of thousands that we'll hear just this week um, that's so different than what the world would say. It's so different than what TV would tell us. Um, and Father, I pray that you give us fresh eyes to hear it, that you give us courage to confess where we've been, where we need to return to, and that you give us a sense even positively how we can move forward today and what it would look like to begin to turn the corner and begin to build a pattern that would set us up for a marriage and for a sex life that would be as fulfilling as you designed it to be, Lord. Father, I ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.
You guys, in case you want to know where we're going next week, next week we're going to talk through the issue of abortion, euthanasia, and war. Kind of the, the sanctity of human life and what God has to say about life in the scriptures. So that's where we'll be next week. Thank you guys for coming. We'll see you all next week.